Hello, everyone. Welcome back. This is More Than Amused podcast, and my name is Sadie. And I'm Stani, and happy Women's History Month. Thanks for being here. It is a great time to be a female historic podcaster, right? Really? Like, this is our (laughs) month to shine. And maybe here's a challenge for all of our dear listeners. If you are like, wow, I haven't been doing anything to celebrate Women's History Month, here's something you can do. You can share your favorite episode that we've done with your favorite friend or someone who you think needs a little bit more feminism in their life or just general appreciation for women. Send an episode to a man you're dating. I feel like that's actually a really great way to see Definitely. if green flag or red flag, you know, we'll see how he responds to you saying, I really enjoyed this. Maybe you will too. If he acts like, no, and disinterested, mm. Not the right guy for you. Yeah, definitely. I 1000% judge people based on like whether or not they're willing to listen to like women musicians, women artists, like female podcasters. Like if they are not willing to consume any female made media, then that is red flag. Red flag. Very bright red flag. Anyway, well, on that note, oh, this is probably going to be the weirdest episode I've ever done. And I was thinking about that and I was like, that's saying something because I literally did an episode on a ghost who wrote a book. Yes, you did. That's a good episode. Yeah. <laughs> Pearl and Nor Curran, if anyone's Yeah, wondering. I was going to say, like, please shout that out because yeah, that is a crazy story. Yeah, this one feels crazier. And I, I like don't know how to feel about it because I feel like this is the first person that I'm going to talk about where like I don't think we would be friends interesting yeah like and I think that she has a lot of reasons for some of the things she did but I don't want to excuse a lot of her behavior because I think it was a little bit inexcusable Mm. but then again this is one of those things where we don't have the full story so I don't know this one's hard for me because I'm like the art is beautiful the story is incredible but like I I don't know how I feel about her I'm so intrigued as to like (laughs) what happened i'm like did she murder someone or like i mean don't don't give it away but i guess we'll see yeah this one this one's gonna be a little a little weird you probably don't recognize the name vivian meyer and if you do then you might have been one of those people who got served a tiktok a few months ago talking about her story that i immediately Mm. wrote down and saved i actually think i sent it to you Yeah, I was actually like, wait, suddenly now I'm remembering this. Yes. It was just like a little glimpse. Basically, it was like this nanny took photos. She didn't show anyone. And then after her death, they found all of them. That's literally the briefest synopsis of Mm -hmm. this whole thing. And it's kind of insane. So I'm going to start with a little bit about street photography because that's what she was. And it's like a very interesting field that we haven't really delved too much into. And then we'll move on to her life and then kind of talk about the whole situation with her photographs. I'm I'm intrigued. I'm ready. (laughs) You should be. This has been very weird. So street photography is, I feel like it's really popular now, especially with the rise Mm -hmm. of social media, but it was also known as like candid photography. And it's just the idea that like you go out into the streets and you take pictures of people in public places without them really knowing. Mm -hmm. Kind of like, it's kind of creepy if you think about it. (laughs) Because you're just like capturing photos of strangers without them having any idea and to be fair street photography doesn't always have to have like a person it could Mm -hmm. also just be like objects or environments but 
because it's taken in the streets it's usually in like metropolitan areas where there's like heavy foot traffic and so things just look human in the city like everything kind of looks human you know Mm -hmm. just kind of one of those things it's very lived in and the whole thing with street photography is that it's this own art because you have to like spot the photo and then like frame it and time it perfectly so that the moment doesn't pass before you've taken the picture and you're not you don't have like perfect subjects you don't have perfect lighting like there's weather and all sorts of other things happening and yet you are the one taking these pictures so it's like really prestigious in a lot of ways and yet it's also one of those very approachable art forms but it's not like an easy one it's kind of like (laughs) i feel like people look at abstract art and they're like oh it's just like colors and lines like a toddler could do that when it's like no (laughs) the reason why that is good abstract art is because of the time that the artist took like it's actually not as simple as you think it is so i think anyone thinks like oh i can just go out on the street and take pictures and oh i'm a photographer but it's it it is a lot more than that so i like it's similar yes no I love that example because that's exactly what it is it's like it looks so easy and it's accessible to everyone and yet it's probably mm-hmm. one of the hardest skills that you could ever have yeah <laughs> and like takes a lot of this and discipline and like a good eye for it like it's just this insane talent that definitely not everyone has I feel like that's almost like a interesting thing with just accessible art in general that it's like accessible art to create like even poetry is something coming to mind where it's like everyone can post their poems and share them on the internet does that make everyone a poet and at the same time like I don't want to be elitist here and be like if you're not like professionally trained you shouldn't share your art but sometimes it feels like I don't know I, I think I feel this way as a songwriter too and like maybe this is a bad thing that I need to overcome and I'm totally like down if that's the case but like if everyone just can write their songs and share them on the internet or everyone is like pushing their music career on the internet I'm like no like I've been a songwriter <laughs> for years and years like I don't know. It's an interesting thing with like art that like anyone can just kind of make. Like it's not like being a sculptor where it's someone's not just going to casually go sculpt something. And, you know, like it's very obvious if it's not a good sculpture, but it seems like anyone Mm. can write a poem, take a picture. I don't know. No, that is such a good point. I think that's where like the phrases of the idea of like the cream rises to the crop or whatever they call it, you know, like or to the Mm -hmm. top. I don't I've been realizing lately a lot of phrases we say are like really messed up and like not messed up. (laughs) I mean, like, we've morphed them into different sayings mm-hmm. that aren't exactly what... Anyway, so I don't know exactly what that means. But basically, like, the best of the best receive the admiration. And that's what yeah. people just think is, like, public opinion is able to tell. But also, I don't know, but sometimes public opinion gets it wrong. So, yeah. And also, it doesn't need to be amazing. Like, people should just create their art. And who cares if it's good or not? Like, just express yourself anyway. So... Maybe I'm just being an elitist piece of trash, you know? I don't know. <laughs> uh, no, I totally get what you're saying, though. It's it's kind of one of those hard things to tell. It also, like, a lot of people try to specify the difference between, like, documentary photographers mm-hmm, or, like, photojournalists mm-hmm. versus, like, street photographers. And the main difference from what I can tell is that social documentary photographers or documentary photographers and photojournalists are more focused on newsworthy events happening. So it'd be like they're taking the pictures of the president's motorcade or something, you know, when he's coming into town for, you know, like it's a notable event. Whereas like, like, of course, they're going to have photographers there. 
Yeah, like a street photographer would take pictures of like a pigeon, you know, like there's Mm -hmm. nothing newsworthy Mm -hmm. about the pigeon, but like they're taking a picture of it anyway. So that's kind of the main difference. What's kind of funny about this is it's actually been around for like a really long time. As soon as technology enabled people to leave their studios with a camera and like go out into the world, street photography has been a thing. Obviously, a lot of that was kind of more almost like landscape photography, but with like people in it because it was just within the cities they were more focused on like the architecture but then it quickly moved into people in the streets and taking pictures of people just living their lives which makes sense Mm -hmm. because painters you think of van gogh he would go out to fields and just paint farmers and it's kind of the equivalent except you don't have to let the farmers know that you are capturing an image of them and it doesn't take nearly as long yes and is way less expensive nowadays for sure. What's also kind of funny about this, so there's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of street photographers. In the United States, it became mainly a thing in the 1900s and especially in New York City. I actually read something that said it rose with the jazz age too. It was just like this idea of like outspoken depictions of life, you know, and the New York School of Photography was starting to become more prominent and so people were learning photography and it wasn't like a formal institution at that time it was just like mm-hmm. a group of people like teaching each other how to use this new technology and so they just like started taking pictures of everything and one is like robert frank he did this 1958 book called the americans and like half of the photos are out of focus and that mm. was kind of the point like he yeah. really capitalized on that style and ran with it and it worked and then a lot of people started getting things published in American magazines like Life and Time and Street Photography gained some traction and became more popular and it's continued like I think of Humans of New York that's exactly what I was thinking of Mm -hmm. yeah that was like giant when we were in high school and it still is I have the book I know he's still continuing but like he's moved to other places and has done some Mm -hmm. other stuff but it was a guy who would just go out and take pictures of people and talk to them and then write their stories. Because of that, it's been kind of creating a subgenre of street photography called street portraiture, where you like sit down and pose the person mm. and they know that you're taking a picture of them. Street but it like is just like a random person. It's not a model. It's not yes. someone hand picked. I mean, I guess it is in a way, mm. but. But if you're picked. like posing them, then they consider it more of a street portrait because they know they're being mm. photographed, where like street photography is still kind of more of that random. They don't know candid moments yeah they kind of obviously they overlap because there could be people who notice out of the side of their eye that you're photographing them and like yeah yeah you know posture differently like (laughs) (laughs) that's just how it works tony ray jones actually had some advice that he wrote to himself in his personal journal about street photography and i thought they were super interesting so i'm gonna share them his notes were be more aggressive get more involved and talk to people Stay with the subject matter and be patient. Take simpler pictures. See if everything in the background relates to the subject matter. Vary the compositions and angles more. Be more aware of composition. Don't take boring pictures. Get in closer. Use a 50 millimeter lens or possibly less. (laughs) Watch camera shake. Shoot 250 seconds or above so it's less blurry. Don't shoot too much because then you have too much film to develop, you know, too much to go through. Mm -hmm. Not all eye level, which I thought was funny. And no middle distance. 
Basically, mm. the person needs to be closer or further away. You don't want them directly in the middle of the frame. So I thought that was super interesting. Just kind of like those tips and tricks that he had learned and that he was trying to remember for himself. One other thing that I found super interesting is a lot of people are like, well, that should be illegal. The fact that you're like taking pictures of people and then selling them. And it's actually hilarious because it's not. A lot of laws were passed originally to prevent like paparazzi, defamation or harassment, you know, like celebrity Mm -hmm. photos of themselves. But street photography falls into a different area. There are some countries that have more restrictions on it than others, but for the most part, street photography is legal in pretty much every country. I know for a fact Finland doesn't allow it they're very private because my brother when he was there wasn't able to like take any pictures of Finnish citizens it's like completely not allowed so he could only have pictures with his companion in them if his companion was American or from a different country that didn't have but like couldn't the people like the Finnish people consent to being in the pictures with him yes but then he wasn't allowed to send them out of the country so he couldn't email them home So he brought photographs with him, like, back, but we didn't Mm -hmm. see, like, any pictures while he was there because... Interesting. Yeah, they're they're a very private, private country. It's just how they are. It's... I honestly wonder if that will change with the rise of the internet. Like, I wonder if with people almost getting, like, being filmed maybe without their consent Mm -hmm. and then getting blasted on social media and then, you know, that actually has potential to, like, you know have negative consequences to them like i wonder if eventually we'll see some type of legal changes as far as like what you're allowed to do with like taking pictures or videos of strangers in public and posting it online i'm surprised it's actually made it this long but it's protected by free speech laws yeah I could, I mean, I, I guess I see that argument for it. So, mm-hmm. and if you're a person existing in society, like it's almost yeah. like you're, I don't know, like the risk you take, I guess, if you start being horrible to an employee at a restaurant, like, well, someone might video it. So <laughs> yeah, like that's literally what it is. Like you don't have to get permission to record anyone. Mm-hmm. I know you do for like taping phone calls in some states, but that's yeah. like different because it's a very like con- close up conversation where it's just mm-hmm. like snapping a video or a photo of someone in public in a public space yeah like they're choosing to act that way in public so therefore freedom of expression yeah. freedom of speech freedom of documentation yeah. <laughs> yeah interesting yeah but there was even a lawsuit that went forward that established that taking publishing and selling street photography including street portraits was legal even without the consent of the person being portrayed mm. Because photography is protected as free speech and arch by the First Amendment. Cool. So. I mean, is that cool? I don't know. It's interesting. I think it's like, I think it's cool in a lot of ways because people are out there. We don't have like professional photographers all of the time. And so if something Mm -hmm. happens, like photojournalism comes into play with like people. Yeah. And I guess that ends up being a really big part of history. And I think sometimes the best window you actually get into history is not the big events. Mm -hmm. It's the everyday lives yes that's the whole appeal exactly of street photography and especially with like social media making it even more Mm -hmm. popular yeah it's just kind of this weird thing so it seems super creepy but yeah as long as you're in a public place you can take pictures of people without their consent well there you go so just be careful just be careful everybody (laughs) definitely so that's super interesting and i would love to hear more about any like popular street photographers that there are around today if anyone knows of any if anyone has any favorites because i still follow humans of new york 
but that's no i still love the account yeah i love reading people's stories so it's just a really cool thing okay well let's talk about vivian meyer (laughs) yeah i'm excited i've been anticipating (laughs) why so vivian meyer there is not a lot known about her All of the information that was found out about her was pretty much gathered together after her death, meaning that there was no like living record or documentation while she was alive that allowed us to have more details. It was like pieced together by people that knew her and that had her stuff after her death. So most of the information that I got, I will say, is biased because it's based on other people's recollections of her, which means there's some contradictions, as well as the fact that it was all spoken and not written down. So I watched a documentary Mm. about her. I had to do one of those like free trial things on Amazon Prime in order (laughs) to watch it, or you can buy it for like 12 bucks. I don't know. It was good. It was only about an hour. I think it was called Finding Vivian Meyer. I'll say it again later. But that's where all this info comes from. So could be completely false, but no one knows. So I'm, you know, like this source. You're just just sharing the story. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So some things about Vivian Meyer. She was really tall. We don't know how exactly tall, but a lot of the people said that it felt like she was like six feet. So she was probably like five nine, you know, like five ten, like really tall for a woman. She had like this short cropped hair that kind of like stuck up in places had a mind of its own she wore these like really heavy combat boots and like men's clothing a lot of like shirts and like they said shapeless clothing and Mm -hmm. everyone described her walk the same she would like stomp around and everyone said she walked like a soldier like swinging her arms like amazing (laughs) yeah cool very distinguished person then definitely the children and like i'll mention she was a nanny So the children that she nannied would later describe her as a socialist, a feminist, a movie critic, and a tell-it-like-it-is type of person. She learned English by going to theaters, which she loved. She was constantly taking pictures, which she didn't show anyone. She also went by different names to everyone. (laughs) She met with someone once who was like a linguistics coach, and he said that her accent was fake. But then like (laughs) other people were like, there's no way that it would be fake. But then he was like, I have a doctorate in language like it was definitely fake so that was interesting i'm like loki you know anna delvey like that's the vibe i'm getting right now (laughs) it's a little bit less i don't know just like malicious than that yeah okay (laughs) that's fair but it's like you know just exists in high society in new york no one knows who she is but like yeah there's like whispers about her i don't know Mm -hmm. (laughs) she wouldn't give him her real name so she told him that her last name was smith and he was like why won't you give me your real name and she was like oh i'm sort of a spy and then he was like no one who's actually a spy would say that so like why would you say that like why wouldn't you want anyone to know what your name was and that apparently was like a very common occurrence for her like any business she interacted with she gave him a different name so she spelled her last name like five million different ways she used any variation of a first initial like v b d c like anything that was close and used smith a ton and like gave all these different names to people and it it didn't matter it was like a little stuff like receipts at businesses you know like the mm-hmm. restaurant order they ask for a name for the order and she just gave them the wrong one she just loved secrets too like there's a tape of her like talking to the children that she nannied and she asks them what their names are and then they're like well what's your name and she says i don't have a name i'm a mystery woman and they all like laugh and it was just kind of one of those things like she loved 
her secrets and the dialect coach even said like she wanted to be someone else and who can blame her don't we all at some point I thought that was kind of interesting like she was just living her life so yeah we don't have a ton of details but we do know she was actually born in New York City so Um, where the accent who knows (laughs) we'll get there (laughs) she was born in New York City on February 1st in 1926 and her mother was French her mother was Maria Hazard Houston Justin and her father was Austrian Charles Meyer but he was also known as William so maybe you know the different name thing came from him (laughs) the guy who was directing the documentary actually went and met with like a historian for like census records you know like one of those people like tracks people down Mm -hmm. and he said that her entire family was a mystery family like the records were incredibly hard to track they were like private people that didn't want their name on like any documentation ever and they were all disconnected from each other too like they didn't keep in touch she had an older brother no mention of him ever interesting and then her aunt they were able to trace to her she had a will that left specific notes that said she wasn't leaving anything to her family for private reasons she basically said like all of my stuff will go to my one friend i don't want any of it going to my family and that's my business she's like what was their deal with each other (laughs) I guess that's fair. Man, oh man, something dark must have happened. But like, you'd assume on the run from something? I don't don't know. know. What happened during her childhood was chaotic. And this is one of the reasons why the census guy was like, this is weird. Because she spent several times throughout her childhood flipping back and forth between the United States and France. Like over and over again, like almost every other year. That is interesting. Yeah, they were able to look at photographs of hers and she was in the same village like three years apart in France, but then like back in America in between. So it was like Mm -hmm. this constant shuffle of like back and forth from France and the United States. They actually had to search in the photographs for like church steeples and then try to match it to photos of France to figure out where this little village was because geolocation isn't a thing on film. (laughs) They have no idea where these pictures were taken. They ended up tracing it to this tiny little French town it actually looks quite adorable it's a little <laughs> alpine village called saint bonnet and her mother's relatives actually still live there wow. it's a little sheep herder village in the french alps so just this little tiny cute village with a little church cobblestone hmm. streets adorable little place her father left the family temporarily for unknown reasons by 1930 so only like four years after her birth and in the 1930 census, they listed the house head of the household as Gian Bertrand, who was a successful photographer who knew Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney, who was the founder of the Whitney Museum of American Art. So there is some connection there to photographers very early on. It's also worth noting that her mother had a box camera too with photographs of Vivian when she was younger, kind of more family portraits, but just the fact yeah. that like her mom also had a camera. And they Mm -hmm. were, like, living with a very successful photographer for a while. Yeah. Kind of shows that, like... Probably where it came from is always a part of her life. Yeah. Yeah. So, when she was four, her and her mother moved to the Bronx. And then in 1935, so five years later, they were back in France. Hmm. (laughs) Three years later, they were back in New York. And then in the 1940 census... So that would be two years after that they were listed Mm -hmm. as living in New York. 
and then her father was back at that time for a while. Hmm. I believe he was working as a steam engineer. And then in 1951, so at this point she's 25, she was in France and then moved back to New York. So as you can tell, there's some gaps there. <laughs> yeah. It's a good 10 years where we know that somehow she ended up back in France and then ended up in New York. We also don't know how she started photography. We'd assume it's from living with this photographer and her mom's early interest in it at a young Mm -hmm. age but we have no clear definition because we don't have her narrative which is one of the things i really miss about this is like we don't have it we don't get her side of the story at all yeah we don't so she moved back to new york from france at age 25 and she got a job at a sweatshop and she hated it (laughs) she talked about how like she wished she could just be outside she didn't want to be inside all day long she wanted to be out and about and so that's why she took up nannying because it gave her freedom That was one thing that quite a few of the kids talked about. There was one girl in particular who was like, she lived her life exactly how she wanted to because she found a job that would give her room and board and then she would have free time all day and all she had to do was like take care of some kids. So she would just take them with her everywhere she went and she would just travel the street and take these pictures and these little kids from like the wealthy suburbs would just trail along behind her in like the slums of Chicago. <laughs> Wait, she's in Chicago at this point? Yeah. So she started out oh, in okay. New York and then, uh, yeah, she moved to Chicago's North Shore area in 1956. So just a cool. couple of years later. And that was the main place where she worked primarily as a nanny for the next 40 years. So, 40? Wow. Yes. So her first 17 years in Chicago, she primarily worked for two families. It was the Gensbergs from 1956 to 1972. So that's like, what, about 12 years? Maybe a little bit more than that. My math is kind of wrong. And then the Raymonds from 1967 to 1963. And those were two families that they actually were able to interview the parents and the children for the documentary, which was interesting. And I feel like they knew the most about her out of anyone and had like the Mm -hmm. clearest because they spent the most time with her. She lived with the family. She spent all day with the children. The parents were her employers. So yeah, yeah. One of them actually said she was like a real live Mary Poppins. She never talked down to the kids and was determined to show them the world outside their affluent suburb. That's kind of the vibe I'm getting and I'm yeah, I'm here for it. One thing though is that like she wasn't like taking them to the best parts of town. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> so like I don't know how like thrilled I'd be as a parent, but also if she was their nanny for 12 years, like you would think the kids would be like, "Hey, guess where we went today?" Yeah. You know? The parents like, eventually must have known told them that they couldn't take them to like the really bad parts of town and so she stopped doing that but i mean it was chicago and that was before like the huge renovation of chicago's area too so it was kind of like dirty and like run down and from a lot of her photographs you can tell like what kind of place it was she had some of like dead horses just like laying in the streets oh okay yeah, it it was interesting. A lot of people talked about how like she saw bizarre, unappealing, incongruous, depressing, and awful parts of life. And mm-hmm. a lot of her work showed that like death, poverty, deformity, like anguish. Oh. It was there was a lot of that. But then also she had these photographs that were so beautiful of like cropped in on just people's hands, like barely touching while they're like walking yeah. down the street or like little kids pressing their 
faces up against the glass of like them shops on the downtown area you know like somehow it's just like these beautiful and yet like some of the most horrible things interesting yeah like her photographs are beautiful like stunning i'm getting ahead of myself anyway (laughs) (laughs) so that was kind of what she did she took pictures she nannied these children and that was her life for the most part there are a lot of like conflicting opinions on what kind of nanny she was and this is where it's hard because it's like i believe the kids definitely like i there's no reason to lie but some of the other things they said i feel like gives a little bit more reason to like what might have happened and i don't know exactly what it would have been because like i said we don't have her story so with some of the children that she nannied they talked about her like this magical person you know like inspiring and positive like gentle Mm -hmm. and kind and funny like just wanted to show them the world like get them out into nature like didn't believe that children should be kept inside all day long so she would basically just like strap them you know to her and like off they'd go into the city to like look at the world and experience it but there were like some really real stories about her being frightening and abusive like forcing a girl to eat by like literally choking her until she swallowed yeah and like taking them into kind of unsafe places one of the kids actually said that she was doing something and it looked like she was about to fall and a guy went to help her and she thought he was going to attack her because all she saw was his hands reaching for her and so she Mm -hmm. decked him in the face and knocked him out wow yeah and then a lot of them have said now that they're older they would bet money that she was like hurt or abused or like molested in some way just like based on comments that she made i'm about to talk about like a few of the children's stories just about some abuse and then some of their things that they said that she said to them that kind of lead me to believe that there was some like child abuse situations so if that's triggering to you then you can skip ahead a little bit one of the boys actually talked about how she would tell him that he shouldn't sit on the laps of men because like they would have Mm. bad intentions and he didn't understand what it meant at the time and then later in life he was like that's kind of a weird thing to say to a kid yeah yeah and just the fact that she was like so private like she wanted like really heavy locks on her doors and she was like super paranoid about her people moving her things or like using her stuff or like looking through her stuff. I think one of the best quotes to kind of describe it all is like one of the moms said she just had those edges that couldn't be smoothed. Hmm. You know, just like one of those people that is just like they're a little bit rough and it just even if there's justification for it, it just like, you know, it like rubs people a little bit wrong cuz yeah. Most of us, you know, society and everything after a while at least teaches you what's appropriate. And so you kind of smooth yourself out in order to comply. Mm -hmm. And she just had no desire to do that. And that's admirable in a lot of ways. But I also think it's like a lot of trauma-based response probably from what I can tell. Like Mm -hmm. it sounds like she was really, really hurt. Who knows what age but yeah yeah. one thing she was really obsessed with was newspapers Mm -hmm. especially ones with like really macabre horrible storylines like headlines like two murdered or like person shot dead or something like she collected all of these newspapers with these like crazy titles and Uh she has millions of pictures of newspapers just like laying on the street with these like horrible headlines like i said just kind of a fascination with like 
the bad things yes like the weird stuff in life but she had stacks and stacks and stacks of newspapers everywhere in her residence one family said it was so bad she was staying on the top floor of their office and the ceiling was starting to slope down in oh from oh my gosh that is a lot of newspapers yeah and eventually she started stacking them in like the basement and by the kitchen door and when they would ask her what they were for she'd say like oh they're my papers i'm gonna cut them and do something Mm. with them like she was trying to document something but but she never got around to it so she just like had all these stacks of newspapers everywhere and yeah she even had some film of like she was kind of like a I think like a true crime fan um, because she filmed this path that this nanny, this other, oh, it was a babysitter had taken right before she was murdered. And she like filmed herself going to the same grocery store and like walking the same path that this lady had like right before she died. So it was almost like a photojournalism kind of in a way, but like she didn't do anything with it. It was almost like just for her own curiosity's sake, which is honestly like what I guess true crime kind of is now, you know? (laughs) Yeah. So it was just kind of interesting. And then all of her days off, she would just walk the streets of Chicago and take more photographs. She mm-hmm. had this really cool camera. It's called a Roloflex. And basically, you take pictures. Not You don't bring it up to your eyes. You hold it down kind of at your chest, stomach area. And then okay. you look down into the camera. And you can see mm. the reflection in there and take it. But they said it's, like, perfect for street photography because no one would know that you're, like, taking pictures of them. Oh, you can, like, be, like, discreet about it. Yeah, because it looks like you're just, like, adjusting your camera that's on your neck. And actually, you're snapping photos. Because you don't have to move it up to your eye. You don't have to do anything. You just look down, make sure it's in frame, and take a picture. So that was, like, her pride and joy. She always had it around her neck. Everyone talked about that, like... Yes, constantly had her camera. In 1959 and 1960, this is what's really cool, she told her employer she was taking two years off and she was going to travel the world. And so she did. She went alone on a world trip and took pictures in Los Angeles and then the Philippines, Thailand, Hong Kong, Vietnam, Malaysia, Singapore, India, Yemen, Egypt, Greece, Lebanon, Syria, Turkey, Italy, France, and Switzerland. Truly all around the world. Yes. That's amazing. All by herself and her camera. Yeah. And she took so much of these photos. Like That's so cool so though many. to like have all of these. Yes. You know? And like of the people there and like her mm-hmm. experience. And she took a lot of selfies too. I think it's really funny. Like in windows or like reflective mm-hmm. surfaces, you know, like the old version of yeah, a selfie. I love that. And so there's a bunch of photos of her just like in all these places around the world. And they believe that what allowed her to do this is her family farm in that little town in France. Um, Mm -hmm. It sold and whatever money she got from that, she was able to finance her trip. She wasn't very rich. Just she struggled with money pretty much her entire life and definitely counted herself among the poor. And they Mm -hmm. think that's why she had such a fascination with like going and taking pictures of these people kind of in decrepit situations because she counted herself as one of them as like a part of like the human condition you know like as horrifying as it can be like I said she kept all of her belongings at her employer's house for a really long time at one point they counted like 200 boxes of materials a lot of them contained photographs or negatives and she also had a lot of like audio tapes of like conversations she had with people she photographed conversations she just had with herself like almost like an audio journal and everything else the family that she was with 
for a while, ended up having to fire her because they told their children that she had just gotten a little too crazy. And that's kind of fair. Like, there was definitely some mental health going on. She Mm -hmm. basically went into a rage after the mom took some of her newspapers to give to the neighbor who was painting their house. And she flipped out and she was like, look, like, they're not your newspapers. They're in my house. Like, they're all over my kitchen. Like, And she just freaked out and they were like, okay, like, I'm sorry, but we've got to let you go. Like, we just can't do this anymore. And it seemed like she was ready for it is what she said because she asked for two months notice, two months pay and then left. Hmm. So yeah, the very last years of her life, two of the kids that she had nannied for, the Gensberg brothers, they tried to help her and so they ended up after she was evicted from this like down market apartment they arranged for her to live in this little better area on Sheridan Road in the Rogers Park area of Chicago and she hung out there the documentary actually went and talks to some of the people who knew her and like the neighbors she had had while they were there and they just knew her as like the old French lady she would like yell at the kids in French and like sit on the park bench for hours and Mm -hmm. they said she went dumpster diving a lot and like would take clothes and stuff from the dumpsters but I mean like those brothers that she had nannied like paid for her living you know like gave her some money so she I think she acted a lot more destitute than she probably was and I think it had a lot to do with like her mental situation it doesn't seem like it was very Mm -hmm. stable at this point in November of 2008 Meyer fell on the ice and hit her head and tried to refuse medical care but they took her to the hospital and she just didn't really recover and so in january 2009 she was transported to a nursing home in the chicago suburbs where she died on april 21st 2009 i feel like that's so recent that's crazy (laughs) yeah this is kind of cute they ended up burying her in these ravine areas where her and the kids the like the gensberg brothers and their Mm -hmm. siblings would go and play when they were little because it was just like this little wild area where there was like wild strawberries and they would like swing on the vines and Mm -hmm. she just always seemed so happy there and they loved it there and like their best memories with her were there because it was like this little wildness in their city you know oh yeah and so they ended up burying her okay (laughs) are you ready for the crazy part oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) okay so what happened is in 2007, two years before she died, Meyer wasn't able to keep up payments on a storage space she had rented on Chicago's north side. When you can't pay rent on your storage unit, they auction it off. Oh. So her negatives, prints, audios recording, and all of her film were auctioned off. And three photo collectors each bought parts of her work. So John Maloof, Ron Slatterly, and Randy Prow each bought a portion of this, like hoping for some gems, you know, like they're photo collectors. So they're just, mm-hmm. they're just going for it. Slatterly looked through and realized that they were good and published some on the internet in July of 2008, but it didn't really receive any response. He tried to Google her name, didn't see anything. And so he just kind of moved on. He like put them in a box and put him in a storage area and moved on. Maloof, John Maloof, bought the largest part of her work. He actually spent, I think he said like almost $400 with like how many he bought. And they didn't know they were worth anything. So I mean like that should tell you how much he bought. The fact that like it's just this random auction and he 
bought 400 bought that much stuff it's about thirty thousand negatives but he was currently working on a book about the history of the chicago neighborhood and so he was hoping he'd be able to find some that he could use after he started going through them he went back found another buyer from the same auction and bought his photographs too that he had bought of myers he knew he struck gold yes he started looking through and he was just like what the heck so he searched her name too and couldn't find anything but then ended up doing another google search later after he was looking through more and found her obituary because this was before her death so they found her photos like two years before she died so Uh in 2009 her obituary pops up and then he's like okay i at least know who she is but he was confused he was like a nanny why did a nanny take all these photos? He couldn't Mm -hmm. understand it. So he ends up linking his blog to a selection of her photographs on like in an album on Flickr and they go viral. And thousands of people are expressing interest. Everyone wants to know more about her. Like people want to buy prints of this. Like it's crazy. He actually went and talked to a bunch of photographers and one of the ladies was like, she would have been ridiculously famous if she would have showed these to anyone. I mean, like, as you were talking, I just went and Googled it. And, like, they are just objectively amazing Yes. Photographs. These are, like, like, it's... It's incredible. They are some of the most beautiful photographs I have ever seen in my entire life. They are gorgeous. Yeah. Like, I don't even know how to describe them. I will obviously post a ton. But, mm-hmm. like, these are stunning. Like, they are so beautiful. They're all square. They're black and white. And they're mm-hmm. gorgeous. Like every single one I flip through, I'm just like, oh, oh, another yeah. one. Like another one. And it's just like these amazing windows into mm-hmm. Chicago in the 1930s, 40s? Yeah. I guess 30s through fit, like throughout mm-hmm. time, really. For like 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. They're so beautiful. Like definitely just Google her name and just look for a while. Like you can scroll for quite a while. Like I said, he found 30,000 negatives. Then he went back and mm-hmm. bought more. And that doesn't even count the three other people who bought stuff in different auctions. Yeah. So he was obviously inspired and ended up tracing all of this. And all of the information we have on her is from Maloof, John Maloof. Wow. I mean, I'm so grateful that the person who showed up at that auction is someone who could see what they were worth. Yes. You know, because I was almost so worried that the story would go like, oh they were able to save a couple hundred of them but we don't know where most of them went like that's what i was so scared happened so it's amazing that like no thankfully the right person like was able to do it you know like was able to buy them to actually recognize their worth and then Mm -hmm. help it live on definitely and like he you could tell he had so much frustration in the documentary because he reached out to the met and like the new york institute of art you know like all these different places and he was like hey like you guys need these like Mm -hmm. you should fund this thing like i can't scan this much film on my own like if you fund it then like this is history of chicago like right here in -hmm. our hands and they didn't want anything to do with it Hmm. she's not a recognizable name they said they didn't want to deal with someone that wasn't able to develop the film on their own because they consider it like half done because developing film is like half the thing because then you don't know which pictures they would have picked and all sorts of stuff but he brought out the fact that there's plenty of photographers who after they die they find more film and they 
they develop it, it for like, them and sell it yeah it happens constantly they just won't do it with her which is annoying <laughs> so the collection now there's a chicago art collector in early 2010 who acquired a portion of them from prowl who was one of the original briars and then his collection so goldstein the art collector he has a collection of 17,500 negatives, 2,000 prints, 30 home movies, and numerous slides. He ended up selling his entire collection to the Stephen Bolger Gallery in Toronto. And then Maloof is the other major owner, mm-hmm. the guy who did the documentary. He runs the Maloof Collection, which was established because of this whole thing. And mm-hmm. he now owns around 90% of her total output including around 150,000 negatives, more than 3,000 vintage prints, hundreds of rolls of film, home movies, audio tape interviews, and a firma, including cameras and paperwork. He actually flew out to France and visited with her family, saw her mom's box camera. He did a little gallery show out in her hometown. And like, Mm -hmm. they all got to see pictures of them when they were younger. Like one lady saw a photo of her husband and she was like literally crying because she had never seen a picture of him. That's so special. It was beautiful. Like he is doing the most he can and he has about 90% of her known work. So (laughs) she's received obviously like international attention. She's pretty much like known in mainstream media. There's been articles everywhere about her. He, in order to fund the development of the film, ended up selling prints so he was like i wish i could give her money <laughs> but i mean but, yeah yeah no he's like but she's dead she didn't have any kids like she didn't have anyone so he was like i wish there was someone i could give it to but like the only way that he can develop all of the film and get everything finished is fund it because no museum will fund it for him even though he's tried that's um, so crazy that no museum will fund yeah. it, even with all of the like, mm-hmm. you know, like, because I saw the TikTok, it went viral. Like, it's it's incredible. It's an insane story. So, yeah, it's just crazy. Like, there's multiple documentaries on it. I watched the one done by the guy who owned her stuff, and that one's called Finding Vivian Mare. It was directed by him. Oh. That came out in 2013. There's also one that the BBC did. Vivian Mare, who took na- who took Nanny's pictures that came out in 2013, the Vivian Meyer mass mystery that came out mm. in 2013, and the Woman in the Mirror, directed by Ryan Alexander Huang in 2017. So it's been everywhere. The University of Chicago Library announced that they had now a collection of Meyer images that were donated by Maloof. Like Maloof is doing the work. <laughs> he is out there like trying his best. He did a whole book about her called Vivian Meyer Street Photographer and got it published. So it has an introduction from him just about the whole thing and then a foreword. And there's been multiple since then. There's a book just about her self-portraits that he edited and published. He also did like another one called Vivian Meyer, a photographer found that was edited by him. So he's trying to fund this project. They eventually had to move the entire thing to like a professional lab that scans her images every day from nine to five at an industrial level just so they can get all of them. Well, there's like I said, 150,000. Yeah, that is a lot. But like what, just like an amazing window in a history. Like that's just incredible. Everyday lives that she was able just to capture. The current gallery that she's with said that they have more interest in her work than any other photographer they have ever worked with. I mean, I I think that's fair. 
Yeah. That's one of the photographers they talked to said that like about like her prints not being developed during her lifetime. For a while, they were kind of worried that maybe she never would have wanted them to be known. And Maloof kind of mentioned that he felt kind of bad if like she never intended for Mm. them to be seen. And then here he was like publishing them everywhere and like profiting off of them. But they did find a letter that she wrote to a film lab she had worked with back in France in her hometown. Mm. And she had taken some pictures of the guy who ran the film lab back there. And she talked about how she was really picky and she didn't like how a lot of people printed her images, but she loved how he did it. And so she was like, I know I live far away, but I would love to work out an arrangement where I could send you my images and you could print them for me how I want them and send them back. And Hmm. it sounds like she was gearing up to display them. She talked about how she was like, I've taken some pictures and in my opinion, they're pretty good. And I was like... Yeah, you're phenomenal. <laughs> They're pretty good. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. So they think that, like, she did intend to show them. She was intending to do something with them. Like, obviously, it was her life's work. She was never mm-hmm. seen without her camera. But, you know, like, mental health, maybe funding. Played a role. Yeah. Yeah, there are so many reasons why, like, maybe this isn't what she wanted. They also said she was just, like, a very private person. You know, the fact yeah. that she couldn't give anyone her real name and one of the kids that she nannied for kind of said like maybe this is what she would have preferred having it happen after her death so that her photographs would get the recognition but that she wouldn't have to be in the spotlight for it it's just crazy i'm gonna list really quick like all of the countries that her work has been shown in norway denmark chicago of course then germany another one illinois london los angeles Atlanta, France, Italy, Belgium, Florida, China, Florida. Russia, wow. sorry, there's multiple, um, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Switzerland, the Netherlands, Sao Paulo, Brazil, Barcelona, Spain, Austria, another one in Italy, Belgium, and all over the UK. Wow. So that is Vivian Meyer. I probably said Meyer sometimes in Meyer. Other times that is my fault. But I believe it is Meyer. That is so incredible that, I don't know, I just feel like, like I said, like there's been so many examples of the women that we've covered on this podcast where their work is lost. Or it's almost like I feel this bitterness of like there was probably more work there that didn't survive. And so I just think it's so incredible that like the right people did find it. Right. Who are now working to champion the work because... Like I said, like I'm looking through the photographs and they're just genuinely the most beautiful photographs I've ever seen in my life. And it's so, it's just so incredible. So they're so gorgeous. I love that. Like it's just indescribable. Like, <laughs> yeah. And it's so weird to like have someone who wasn't famous, like not even in the slightest bit, like no inclination mm-hmm. that she had any artistic talent at all, other than the fact that everyone saw her with a camera. And yeah. then to have her entire collection of work. That's the part that's just crazy. Like, to have yeah. everything. I wonder if, not- with all of her audio journal type things, like, I wonder if those have, like, all been gone through. Because I feel like that would give, like, a really big window into who she was. At least, like, her side yeah. of the story kind of a thing. Um, she didn't really talk about personal things. He played some of it. Oh, she talked more okay. about, like, the news or, like, what she did that day. It wasn't really okay. anything like her life story or anything Got like it. that. So, yeah, there's not, like, a ton of insight like we yeah he got a lot of insight into who she was as a person like how she acted what she did on a day-to-day basis 
Mm-hmm. But like as far as her backstory, like why she did the things she did. Got it. Okay. We don't know. That's fair. I mean, obviously, I'm so intrigued. Like that family is not, yeah. you know, like I have a feeling that her dad sucks. So that's just um, my suspicion. Yeah, that's kind of what I would assume too. But incredible artist. Incredible artist. This just shows that, you know what, there, yep, there is indeed an art to street photography because it's beautiful. Like yeah i want to get one and like frame it like literally they are so pretty i the hardest part would be picking which one i that's what i was just gonna say like but which one <laughs> i have no idea it's just endless looking through here too like the amount that i'm like oh there's there's her like i think it's so cool that she did and would photograph herself too yeah like all the time she took so many self-portraits I love it. And it's it. funny because the way that they talked about her, it was if she had like no self-esteem or anything in herself. And then it's like she was taking pictures of herself constantly. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I don't buy that. Or like you mentioned, I want to hear her story from her perspective, like mm-hmm. adding I this really to the list of the afterlife of like when right. I die, I'm going to go find her and be like, tell me. I want to know what this was like. And yeah. yeah it's amazing so yeah definitely one of the most interesting people i've read about for sure and also one of like the people i feel like we know the least about like i feel like we know less yeah. about her than anyone else because it's like everything we know about her is within the context of what other people said and that's interesting so of course totally. not excusing any of the stuff that the children said but like looking at it through the lens and a lot of them have said that they understand now being older yeah. that there was a lot more to it than they could comprehend at their age and a lot of them just feel major compassion for her just a woman who spent her life alone basically her and her camera yeah it captured some beautiful beautiful things highly recommend the documentary yeah i want to go check it out it was really really good and he shows even more of the images he shows some of the footage plays some of the audio recordings and you get to see like the beautiful reactions that people have when they see her stuff oh cool yeah that is just on another level of well thank you for talking about her i am now gonna spend the next who knows how long just scrolling through google (laughs) images because there are a lot to go through yes and i absolutely love this and thank you listener for being here and hope you enjoyed this episode as well and we'll be back next monday for another more than amuse monday yes we will also a major plug if you're not following us on Instagram, please oh, do. this is the week to do it. Yeah, I'm going to be posting, obviously, a lot of photos. So it's moreThanAmuse.podcast. Also, we do have a newsletter that comes out every single week. It's usually, like, oh, yeah. on Tuesday or Wednesday after the episode with a lot more of, like, photos and details up front so you don't have to wait until we post them later in the week. Like, you get them immediately. And mm. I'm planning on adding a ton of photos into this one. It's on Substack. It's called More Muse News. The link is in our bio and Instagram as well. So go join the newsletter. It's free. And then Amazing. you can get to see all of that as well. We'll see you next week. See you next time. Bye. Bye. So the person that I am spotlighting today their instagram handle is expressive forest their name is alicia <gasps> ward or ooh, i you just saw her stuff them? i'm really oh, excited okay. <laughs> i so she does ceramics illustrations and textiles she's from scotland and yes okay this is this is the horrible thing about doing spotlights the way we do spotlights because i cannot show you as the listener I can't show you this, but you need to go. You need to go right now to Expressive Forest. 
And I mean, Casey Musgraves is following her. So, ooh, I yep, should we as as everyone should. They're amazing. They're ceramics with just a lot of like florals, pastel colors, some like cowboy boots. They're so beautiful. Ceramic jewelry. It's I I love them a lot of like candlesticks yes. even too i just the oh. candle holders are amazing and the little cowboy boot necklaces i, I literally, literally i'm like i'm cannot. in i'm in nashville i i need one almost i feel oh. like i don't know why i associate you now with cowboy boots just you being in nashville like, <laughs> yeah i'm honored i feel like i need to get a pair just almost because i mean because i have to at this point literally yes oh oh they're like all sold out of course, uh, but I am now following, and I mean they're not even like that expensive either. It's not crazy. Oh, it's not. yeah, absolutely like feel totally justified in the price. They're so like, some of these cute. necklaces are like thirty something dollars, and they're amazing. So please go check it out. Go stay up to date for all like so many charms. Like she does different drops all the time. She did a I think she did an International Women's Day drop for little charms for necklaces, and I. Oh, I love them. That's amazing. So go check her out. I found someone very on par with today's episode. Amazing. Jen Sayo, I think is how you would say it. It is J-E-N-N-S-E-I-J-O. She is a street, street photographer. Excellent. And it's all black and white and it's gorgeous. Ooh. I okay I have just now have discovered that street photography might be my favorite kind of photography I think it definitely is my favorite kind of photography (laughs) I love this yes so I literally don't even know how to describe them I just think you need to go and look I think she's in France where is Vigio Italy yeah I don't know my American is showing she's in Europe somewhere (laughs) our american is showing sorry (laughs) but it's just beautiful like just beautiful street photography high contrast lots of black and white lots Mm -hmm. of like little moments and i love it yeah so please go follow her appreciate her work looks like she also has a concert photo account where she takes pictures of concerts and she also has a food photo account yeah and i just saw that i'm like that's excellent Ooh, her food photos are very appetizing (laughs) very appetizing indeed (laughs) so it looks like she's got a lot of different things going on highly recommend you can go check out all of those and if you're in that area and looking for a food concert or street photographer you could hire her amazing 